0: Good morning. It's always a pleasure to be with you on Sunday, as you've heard Daniel has said and Will has said. and It's um, certainly always a pleasure to be able to preach and to be able to bring the Word. Uh, Lonnie and his family have been on vacation this week, so I am uh, grateful to be able to uh, step in for him. We will move away from Exodus uh, for this week, as Will uh, insinuated, and we'll back in Philippians. Philippians is our intermittent focus every once in a while when we're not on our normal, uh, normal course of events. Uh, so today I'll go ahead and tell you our, our scripture and our title of our sermon. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. And if you guys want to put the title slide up there, the, the title of the sermon today will be Citizens Shaped by the Cross. This text uh, is familiar for some of us. If you have been here for a little bit, you'll remember that this was the focus of our uh, preaching uh, in December of 2019 during Advent season of that year. We, uh, For those four weeks of December, we focused on these seven verses, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Of course, uh, we took four weeks to go through it then at that point. Um, uh, now we're going to take this all in one shot. So what I would like to do is go ahead and read the text now. Uh, normally, I would summarize where we've been, especially when we haven't been in Philippians for the last uh, three months. Um, but we have, a, we have a good amount of, of contextual work to do, and uh, we want to consider some of the special significance of this passage. And, and I want to do that having already read. So if you would go ahead and stand and open your Bibles or find in your phones Philippians 2, 5 through 11... We're going to start reading. We're going to back up and start in chapter 1, verse 27, and we will go through chapter 2, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a text. You can be seated. Let's go ahead and pray. We always need help from the Lord to understand his word. We, we especially need help today. God, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for the ways we've been able to, to point to you. Hopefully, God, we have we've pointed to you humbly and faithfully this morning through our songs and our prayers and our readings of Scripture and our attitudes now as we sit in these chairs. And as I preach here, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see this text this morning and fresh ears to hear this text, which for some is, is quite common uh, but there is nothing common about this text. So God, I pray that you would give us the, the faith to hear what you have to show us today. I pray that you would give our children, even some of our children who have heard the gospel as it has been simply presented to them for, for years maybe, would you give them fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear back in the back as they, as they learn about Samuel and Eli this morning from 1 Samuel. We need you now, God, and, and uh, I pray that you would help us through this time to be serious about your word and be serious about what you have to say to us. We can read your word every day, and we come to you as often as we want to feast on your word, but once a week do we come and we feast together as the word is proclaimed from this pulpit, and I ask that you help us to take advantage of that now and hear you. And it's in your name I pray, amen. So I want to go ahead and warn you, um, you may have, the points were up there, now they're gone. You don't need them right now. That's fine, just like it is. What I wanted to warn you about is that we're going to get to the outline a little bit later today than normal, um, and I, I wanted to say that to say, uh, the sermon doesn't start with point one. It started now. It started uh, six minutes ago. So, so don't kick back waiting for point one. We got a little bit more to do uh, before we get to the outline than normal. Uh, so I just want to say that to say, go ahead and engage. Sermon begins now. We find ourselves, as I've alluded to, in a quite significant text today. Uh, many have considered Philippians 2, 5 through 11 to be the singular most comprehensive unit of Christology in all the Bible meaning the single most comprehensive place where we learn about the theology of Jesus is here. We get the relationship of the Father and the Son. The, 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 the eternal relations unto eternity past of the first and second persons of the Trinity are here. We also get detailed for us the, the mechanics of the incarnation. We get, we get a peek into John 1.14, how did the word become flesh and dwell among us? Paul pulls back the curtain here and speaks to that. So when we, when we consider the biblical canon as a whole, that, that means all 66 books of the Bible, this passage today stands at the top, if not uh, among the top, if not at the top for our theology of Jesus. There's canonical, we could say, canonical significance to this passage. There's also in this passage a unique historical significance. Um, this, some of the most, some of the most intense and dangerous theological controversies in the church, particularly in the first 400 years of the church, are related to this passage. So let me just give you a few of these By the way, don't write these down. There's no test. Heaven forbid, don't try and repronounce or spell these. But I want to give these to you so you can feel the weight that this passage has carried in church history. Ebionism was a heresy that denied the genuineness of Jesus' deity. It said that he was an ordinary human but possessed extraordinary gifts. Or you may have heard of this one Arianism, which denied the completeness of Jesus' deity. It said that Jesus was created, the first thing created, but still created, therefore not quite fully God. Well, verse 6 and verses 9, 10, and 11 speak to the genuineness and the completeness of Jesus' deity. That regards his deity, but his divinity has also been under attack. Docetism was a heresy that denied the genuineness of Jesus' humanity. It said that Jesus only seemed human. He wasn't really human. He only appeared to be human. Or there was Apollinarianism, which denied the completeness of Jesus' humanity. Said, yes, he had human flesh, but not a human soul. Therefore, he wasn't completely human. Well, verses 7 and 8 of our text speak to the completeness and the genuineness of Jesus' humanity. I want you to feel the the historical significance that this passage has carried, speaking both to the completeness of his deity and the genuineness there and the completeness and genuineness of his humanity. And given the significance of this text, both within the biblical canon and within history, you you probably won't be surprised to hear that this text has been the, the subject of much, much debate. Uh, I I think I remember Lonnie making this claim about one or two texts in Romans, but I've heard the same claim made about this text, that in the last 100 years, this text has had more commentary written on it than any other words in the entire New Testament. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If it's not the most, it's among the most commented on passage in the whole Bible. Uh, One commentator whose book on Philippians is 500 pages spends 100 pages of 500 20% 20% on these seven verses. Much of the commentary that you find centers around the, the vocabulary and the grammar here and how that comes to bear on the theology. And on one level, understandably, right, we're, we're dealing with such significant issues here like the divinity and the humanity, the nature of Jesus. We should be grateful that people have labored to be precise over what this text means. Another point of debate here, frequently, is uh, surrounding the potential origins of this passage as an early Christian hymn. So, so you might sometimes hear this passage referred to as the Christ hymn. And, and there is a noticeable poetic structure. Uh, there is a noticeable symmetrical rhythm to these, uh, these verses. There are several rare words that Paul does not use frequently elsewhere. So that might suggest maybe he adopted these from an early Christian hymn into his letter to the Philippians, possibly. Uh, But but the fact of the matter is, whether Paul wrote these words or whether he just borrowed them from a hymn to put in his letter, uh, the fact remains that he, he used them because they conveyed exactly what he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to convey, So at the end of the day, whether this is the Christ hymn or whether it's just the words of Paul, uh, initially from Paul, it doesn't really affect the meaning of our passage. I I mention that to say, uh, for your edification to know, you might hear this passage called the Christ hymn. So this passage has canonical, historical, theological significance it's been a, a, a significant focal point in Christian scholarship. And, and this is much more of a peek kind of into the exegetical weeds than I would normally give on a, on a text. But I've done this for a reason, uh, for three reasons, actually. I've given you some of this background. One, because I, I just want you to recognize the unique significance of Philippians 2 5 through 11. All the Bible is breathed out by God and and profitable for teaching, correcting, reproof, rebuke, walking in righteousness. All of the Bible is breathed out by God and profitable for that. But we get such a substantial look here into the massively important foundations for our faith. Who is Jesus? At the very least, it's worth highlighting that. Given that significance... This is the point number two that I've given you this. I want to encourage you to put a mental bookmark here. Put a mental bookmark on this passage. When we, when we finished Romans, I, I made a, a Romans recap that I taught to our students into my GC. And when I did that, I encouraged them in Romans to put a mental bookmark on chapter 3 verse 21. That's kind of the hinge in Paul's gospel presentation of Romans when he says, but now the, righteous, but, but now the, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he said, put a mental bookmark there. Well, I want you to do the same with Philippians 2, 5 through 11. When you think of the Bible, or when you think of the New Testament, or at least when you think of Paul, put a mental bookmark on the significance of this passage. I'm not big on giving you my subjective opinion from the pulpit, but I'll make an exception here. This is a top three passage to memorize. If you're going to have some, verse, some passages, like not just single verses, but some, some chunks of scripture at the ready, make this one of them. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But the third reason that I've given you all this background, I think is the most important reason. We've highlighted the theological canonical, and historical significance because this is not Paul's point. He did not include this in his letter to the Philippians to serve as a systematic theology on the doctrine of Christ, although it is that. Paul did not write this to serve as a preventative measure against the Christological heresies that would spring up over the next 400 years. Although it did do that as well. Paul certainly did not write this text to to serve our own intellectual curiosities, although, judging by the massive amounts of commentary, it does do that as well. As magnificent as this text is, in context, it functions, if I can say, merely as an illustration. And when you're making an argument, you know this, or when you're, when you're presenting or teaching something, we use illustrations to support the main point, right? The illustration is never the main point in itself. So all of this high-flying theology of Christ that Paul gives us here is a support passage in his letter to the Philippians, which reminds us of something we have heard over and over again as we walk through the Bible. We, we saw this particularly at the end of Romans. That's that theology, at the end of the day, is for life. Theology is for living the Christian life. If if this exists, we must disabuse ourselves of the notion that theology is for pastors, or theology is for those who like to read, or theology is for the extra serious Christians. Theology is, is not just to satisfy our intellectual curiosities. Theology is not just for right thinking. Theology is for right living. And Paul knows this. That's why he gives us some of the most soaring theological language in all of the Bible to teach us how to live the Christian life. That's what he's doing here. Precisely, Paul is giving us theology for Christian living. And it just so happens to be the most significant theology of Christ in the whole Bible. So, where are we in Philippians? It's been a few months. I had us start reading in chapter 1, verse 27, because we are still under the umbrella of, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There we were introduced to the concept of Christian citizenship. Paul was encouraging the Philippians to live worthily as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of earth. And this would have been particularly relevant for those in Philippi, being a Roman colony. There's much pride in being a Roman citizen. In Paul's message to them, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, is don't worry about being a citizen of Rome, conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. Where Jesus is king and the gospel is the law of the land. We live as citizens in that kingdom, and he talked about the, the radical kind of unity we have as citizens in that kingdom, bound together by our mutual participation in the Spirit. This then leads Paul to exhort the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, toward the fundamentals of citizenship. The first fundamental being unity. And because self-centeredness is the biggest threat to unity, the second fundamental was humility. That's why he writes verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And it's on the heels of that call Towards unity, that we get, that, towards humility, excuse me, that we get today's passage as an illustration of Jesus's humility. Up until now, the argument from Paul has gone like this Because you are citizens of heaven, establishing your citizenship, here's how you should live. Do you remember this indicative and imperative dynamic that being goes into doing? Right? That's how Paul has argued so far. Well, today, he takes his argument another step forward. He says, live with this radical, others-oriented kind of humility as a citizen in the kingdom because that's what the king did. This is the function of verse five. And we're gonna go ahead and get into the text. I promise we're gonna to get to the points in a minute. But I wanna to go to verse five because verse five is what springs us into verses 6 through 11. Verse 5 points us to the illustration of Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. But let me me make a a comment on the translation of verse 5. If you're in the ESV, which most of you probably are, um, the second half of verse 5 reads, which is yours in Christ Jesus? Uh, You'll probably see a footnote there. And the footnote says, you could also read that as, or which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, The ESV is actually the Lone Ranger here. Uh, Almost all other modern translations use what the ESV calls the alternate ending. Almost all other translations will say, which is also in Christ Jesus. And, And I have to dissent with the ESV here and go with what they call the alternate reading. I think grammatically and contextually, uh, what 's in the footnote in your ESV fits better here, so we should read verse five as saying, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in which which is also in christ jesus i wouldn 't normally make that point, but because verse five is the spring that launches us into the rest of the text, I want to be precise for how Paul is doing that he 's still striking a blow selfish ambition. He's still trying to strike a blow to the pride and in, in, in vain glory of verses three and four. And his angle of attack now is to present us with the example of Jesus. So verse five, the call in verse five is conform your mind to the mind of Christ. And as we'll see, the climactic expression of Jesus's humility is we'll see in verse 8, happens at the cross. So if we are to have the mind of Jesus, we must be citizens shaped by the cross. With all of its theological intrigue, historical, canonical significance, the point of this passage is a call, a very ethical call, to be citizens of heaven shaped by The cross. To make this call, and I'll give you the outline of the sermon, Paul presents Jesus as the premier example by showing the status of the Son, the descent of the Son, and the exaltation of the Son. Paul's showing us Jesus' example. By pointing to the status of the Son, the descent of the Son, and the exaltation of the Son. Let's begin. In point one, he begins his illustration with the status of the Son. Specifically, Paul is getting at the pre-incarnate status of the Son. Verse six. says, who, referring back to Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In his pre-incarnate, meaning before he came to earth, in his before he came to earth existence, the Son, Jesus, was in the form of God. Paul is establishing the divinity of Jesus from eternity past. The form of God does not mean that Jesus was in the external shape of God, or that he was in the physical form of God, rather that he possessed those, those qualities and characteristics that are essential to being God. Now, this is one of the words. There's about five words in this passage that are hotly debated. This is the first one. So some other scripture is helpful for us here. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John seventeen five. Jesus prays, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus shared in the glory with the Father before the world existed. Why? Because he was God. He was in the form of God. As Will read, Colossians 1, 15, he is the image, not in the image of like we are, he is the image of the invisible God. Our call to worship this morning, Hebrews 1.3. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, Jesus Christ. So in concert with the rest of the scriptures, Paul establishes Jesus' status as divine. This was the issue over which the Council of Nicaea Gathered. You, may, you may have heard of the early church councils, Nicaea, Chalcedon, Constantinople, when the, when the bishops would gather to, to hammer out and, and, and agree upon uh, what it was that the Bible taught. In 325 AD, they gathered at Nicaea in response to Arius. This was one of the, the controversies I mentioned earlier. Arianism taught, uh, Arius taught that Jesus was created by the Father, Therefore, he was not fully equal with God. And the conclusion of Nicaea is this. This is the Nicene Creed. Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That was the conclusion of Nicaea. Put to bed Arius, not for good, he hung around for a while, but theologically put it to bed by establishing the status of the Son as in the form of God. Paul is standing in line with the rest of the Bible. He is affirming what Nicaea affirmed. Jesus is totally and completely God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is very God of very God of the same substance and essence as the Father and the Spirit. And to put it in terms we've heard recently, Jesus is I Am. Jesus is Yahweh. Paul is preparing for the descent of the Son by first establishing Him in His infinite heights. Which means any semblance of descent, any millimeter of descent for God is a descent of infinite proportions. Which only makes the second half of verse 6 All the more amazing. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, a thing to be grasped. By the way, this is word number two that's been subject of debate, probably the most significant one in the whole passage. Jesus did not consider being equal with God, this is the idea, something to hold on to for personal advantage. He has every right in the universe, though, to hold on to his being God as something to be grasped. He is God after all. He's not taking something that isn't his. He is God. But the text says that he did not consider this something to hold on to, not something to hold on to for his own personal gain. Paul is beginning to show us the mind of Christ. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped because he looked not to his own interests but to the interest of others he did not consider equality with god something to be grasped because he considered others more significant than himself paul is demonstrating the contrast between the mind of christ and the mind of the flesh or more personally he's demonstrating the contrast between the mind of christ and my mind Because in the flesh, my mind, our minds are set, are bent towards ambition and pride and self-preservation. But the mind of our king is not so. He is about self-sacrifice, not self-preservation. He is not self-focused. He is others-focused. He is not prideful. He is humble. King Herod tried to hold on to his power, and he murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem to try to keep it. The Pharisees and the the ruler, the, the leaders of the Jews, they certainly considered their power and status as something to be grasped. And they murdered Jesus because they thought he was going to take it from them. Pharaoh, he was afraid of the Israelites. He was afraid that they would overtake his kingdom, so he enslaved them so that he could hold on to his power for his own advantage. The irony, though, is all of these guys have an authority that was given to them in the providence, the strange providence of God. Jesus, however, is the only one with true authority, not given to him, but in his essence, essentially being authority, yet he's the only one willing to step down from it. Paul establishes the status of the Son with God. And then verse 6 points us downhill to prepare for the descent of the Son. Verses 7 and 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility of the Son is displayed in his willing descent. And I want to walk us through three steps to this descent. These aren't chronological. In real life, this happens all at the same time. But it is as if for effect, Paul is bringing us down the staircase one step ...at a time to show us the descent of Jesus. The three steps that Paul brings us down... ...is that Jesus empties by addition. He enters as a servant. And he offers himself. The first step of descent is that he empties by addition. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, this is uh, area number three where there's there's debate. We need to be careful and we need to be precise here. We're we're getting the mechanics, a peek into how the second person of the Trinity became flesh. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, if we're going to maintain what we mentioned earlier, that he is fully God and fully man, there's some things this cannot mean. Number one, it cannot mean that he divested himself of some of his divinity. It cannot mean that he set aside or relinquished some of his divinity. This is called the kenotic theory from the word kenosis, meaning to empty, and it's heresy. Jesus did not relinquish any divinity. He also did not make an exchange. There's not an exchange happening, divinity for humanity, exchanging one for the other. Also not true. He did not relinquish. He did not replace. In other words, his being God, his divinity, did not diminish in the least. Jesus must remain, as Nicaea said, very God of very God. And we must affirm this. Listen, this is very important. We must affirm this in order to be Christian. If we cross the line here, We exit Christianity, and we enter into a different religion entirely. Whatever it means that Jesus emptied himself, it does not mean that his divinity diminished in the least. He's fully God. Well, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Well, uh, the grammar helps us here. Verse 7 says, "...he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Or we could say by being born in the likeness of men. The manner in which he emptied himself was actually that he added to himself. Do you see that? He adds to his divine nature a human nature. And yes, it is a genuine and complete human nature. Something we also must affirm in order to be Christian. The word form in verse 7, taking the form of a servant is the same word as form of God in verse 6. So the extent to which Jesus possessed the genuine and complete divinity in verse 6 must be the extent to which he assumes genuine and complete humanity in verse 7. You see that? Jesus incarnate is two natures in one person. Fully God and fully man. We call this the mystery of the hypostatic union, if you're interested in that. This is the mystery of the hypostatic union. How could he be simultaneously fully God and fully man when some of the characteristics of God preclude being man and some of the characteristics of man preclude being God? That's why they call it a mystery. We can say, he remained completely divine, and we, we might could say he willfully restrained portions of his divinity in order to assume humanity. Or maybe you could say he holstered parts of his divinity. Jesus was not omnipresent on earth, correct? He could only be in one place at one time like you and I. But he was divine, so he holstered portions of his divinity. Still possessed, but restrained. Beyond that, Calvin cautions us from going beyond that. Many points in his institutes, he gets to these, these these mysterious places where logic takes us no further, and he basically says, We don't have the right to go there. So stop. It's a mystery. So that's what we'll do. The one who created man from the dust of the earth with but a word has become man himself. And notably. He has done so willingly. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. The second person of the Trinity, listen, was not going to be humbled by anyone else. Unless he did it to himself. And yet again, we see the mind of Christ that flies in the face of self-regard. Because in Jesus, what we see is a willing self-disregard. And with this step down the staircase, he has already descended infinitely. Taking on a human nature is an infinite descent for one who is fully God. It's almost embarrassing to compare our situations to this, is it not? And I think that's that's by design. This is meant to be an indictment on our pride. When we see the infinite descent of the second person of the Trinity to become human, it should immediately be an indictment to our silly ambition. When our King Himself did not consider the most precious thing in the universe something to be grasped. This is the first step down the staircase. He empties by addition. The second step Paul gives us is that he enters as a servant. Surely, if God is going to take on human if God is going to take on human flesh, at least he will do so as a king, or a lord, or a prince, or a captain, right? Nothing on earth compares to where he was, but if he's going to take on flesh, at least he's going to take on the best and highest that this world has to offer, no? Jesus enters in the humblest state. His descent takes him from the highest place in the universe, the highest status in all of existence, to the very lowest status on earth. He took the form of a servant. This is, the one, thing, this is one of the things that the disciples had a really hard time understanding. Remember when Jesus and John sent mommy to ask Jesus if they could have the best places in his kingdom? And Jesus responds, he says, I'm not even here seeking the best place in this kingdom. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he demonstrates this so clearly at the last supper, does he not, when he washes the disciples' feet Jesus sets the standard. The mind of Christ is that of a servant. And he says there in the upper room, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's saying, If our master is a servant, then we must go and do likewise. Jesus enters as a servant. But the third step of this descent reaches the crushing climax. I prayed earlier that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, mainly here. He is emptied by addition. He enters as a servant. And the final step of Jesus' descent is that he offers himself. In verse 8, being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in human form, as a servant, Jesus humbles himself further. In the same way that verse 7 showed us how he emptied himself, remember, by adding human nature. Verse 8 shows us how he humbled himself by Becoming obedient to the point of death. In the garden, the night before, the night that he was betrayed and arrested, the night before he would go to the cross, Jesus prayed this to the Father If you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his humanity, Jesus there in the garden is staring down the full cup of God's wrath that is to be poured out on sin. And he knows that if he continues with the plan until tomorrow, the full weight of God's wrath will be poured out of that cup and will come to bear fully on his shoulders, crushing him. As Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the will of the Father to crush him. And he confessed in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Listen, there's not a shred, not a shred of self-preservation in Jesus. Only complete and total obedience for the sake of our interests. Do you see how he is fulfilling verse 3 and 4? He considered our being redeemed from the clutches of sin and death to be more significant than the preservation of his own life. He was obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. We really have no comparison in our language or in our culture to feel the weight of this tag on the end of verse 8. Even death on a cross. Death is mostly sanitized for us. Even when we do um, have to witness the, the horrors of death with a loved one is dying from a physical illness or an accident. Even when we do witness that, we still at the very least uphold the dignity of that person in death because they're made in the image of God. Not so at the cross. Not so. The whole point was to be intentionally not only, not only uh, executing but intentionally humiliating, intentionally stripping all dignity from the executed. So there, Jesus, very God of very God, dies upon the tree, naked. His flesh having been ripped open, he'd been mocked, Spat upon, lifted up for all to see his glorious humiliation in all of its splendor and ugliness. Yet what was unseen, the worst punishment of all. The full weight, that cup he prayed about in the garden, the full weight of that cup of God's wrath upon his shoulders, this surely marks the end of Jesus' descent On one hand, humanly speaking, there are no lower depths to which he could descend. There is no lower position on the face of the earth than to be hanging on a Roman cross. And I think that probably is still true today. On the other hand, It's the end of Jesus' descent because the cross is the fullest and the ultimate expression of his humility. When you have offered the most precious thing in all the universe, there is nothing left to offer. And this is the end of his descent. This must be the end of his descent because in his quest to save sinners at the cross, he bears the ultimate punishment. And when you have borne the ultimate punishment, as Hebrews tells us, there is no more punishment left to bear. There is no more atoning work left to be done. There could be no greater demonstration of humility than this. Get this. This is the point of the sermon. The mindset of verses 3 and 4 find their ultimate expression when the Son of God is dead on a cross in verse 8. That's what Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 is about. This whole passage is a contrast between self-regard and the mind of Christ to show us that self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. Selfish ambition perishes there. Vain glory, what he called conceit in verse 3, disappears in the shadow of the glorious cross that we sang about earlier. So the message to us is so plain. Christian, live by way of the cross. Our attitudes and our minds must be shaped by the cross because our Savior and our King has this mind. To be cruciform, it's a word we don't use often, but cruciform means something that is cross-shaped. this. The Christian life is a cruciform life. So I think the question we must ask ourselves is what is the shape of your life? Is it generally in the shape of your future goals? Is the shape of your life the shape of your career? Or is it the shape of a ladder? where you can ascend to higher income, higher notoriety, higher security. While you're climbing up the ladder, will you pass Jesus as he climbs down? In the cruciform life, our self-regard, our selfish ambition, our vain glory Dies at the foot of the cross. So have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, to have a cross shaped life. Take up your cross. That's what Jesus means. Take up your cross and follow him to Calvary every day that you breathe. If your marriage is struggling, have the mind of Christ and consider her needs more important than your own. Is being a Christian costing you something these days? Have the mind of Christ and be without regard for your own self preservation. Are you embroiled in sin today? have the mind of Christ and consider not your own pleasure as something to be grasped all of life for the christian is a cruciform life so under the umbrella of philippians 127 we say live as citizens in the kingdom of heaven shaped by the cross well When you're at the bottom, what's the good news? The only place left to go is up. After the depths of verse 8, this is what we get. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After his descent, there is only one place to go for this Jesus. He returns to his rightful Place. He is super exalted, highly exalted. I like super exalted even better. We're not given much detail about this exaltation, but we know it has to include three things. It includes his resurrection, of course. Verse 8 is not the end of the story. It is the climax of Paul's point here. But it's not the end of the story. He willingly went to the cross to die on our behalf, but in the power of the Spirit on the third day, the Father raised him and secured his victory over sin and death. He was exalted via resurrection. Then after 40 days, he was exalted via the ascension. Jesus returned to the Father where he had been from eternity past. But now, get this, I don't know if you ever thought about this before. He returned to the Father in human form, in the likeness of men, in the flesh. When Jesus took on flesh, he never takes it off again. He is now with the Father at his right hand in the flesh, with the scars that he showed Thomas. Maybe the fish he ate is still in his belly, seated with the Father. In this final part of his exaltation, we call the session of Christ, S-E-S-S-I-O-N. The session of Christ, that the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he occupies the highest authority in the universe. He sat down when he completed his work. There he is exalted and given that place. He's not given a higher status than he had before. After all, you cannot improve on the very form of God and equality with God. Can't get higher than that. So he does not get a higher status, but he is given, as verse 9 says, the name that is above every name. I think it was Kent Hughes that said this. This exaltation means the superiority of the Son is now more fully evident. To the creation over which he rules. He's no more higher exalted than he was before. He was God. If you can improve upon God, then it wasn't God to begin with. He is no more higher exalted than he was before, but his renown and his fame and what he has done is now more fully evident over the creation that he reigns. Every knee will bow to him, every knee will bow. Those on earth, all human beings will bow. Those in heaven, all angelic beings will bow. Those in hell, all demonic beings and those in hell will bow to him. Friends, this is where history is going. You see a should there in verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That doesn't mean ought. It means will. This is a promise. Every knee will bow. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you will bow to Christ. So let, let, let me implore you or let this service implore you to be reconciled to him while there is time. God has been gracious to you to have this, this, this message of the gospel and what Christ has done for you presented before you today. So take hold of it. Bow your knee now because it will not be pleasant to bow it later. Do not spurn the grace of God, but take hold of what is offered to you freely. Freely. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. There it says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And this is the word that shall not return. This is the paraphrase. Paul picks up in verse 10 and 11. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Notice what's happening here. Isaiah says, God says, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will swear allegiance. Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to Jesus. Jesus. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is the vehicle by which every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to God. What we're seeing here is the glory of God manifested in the exaltation of the Son. This, friends, is most fundamentally, unequivocally, objectively, the point of the Bible. This is it. This is what history is about. If I can go bigger than that, this is what all of existence exists for. This is why we even have a Genesis 1-1. God didn't need to create the heavens and the earth. He would have been just fine. The reason we ever got a Genesis 1-1 and following is so that he might put on display the greatness of his glory as manifested through the sun. Philippians 2, 9, 10, and 11 gives us the point of existence. Why did God create the world? So that he might be glorified through the Son? <laughs> Paul has just exploded. I think is what happens. He gets off track here, I think. He, he's been giving us an illustration. We can't do this. This is not for us to do verse 9. He, he's, so, he's so sidetracked, so, so blown away by what God has done in, in Christ. He cannot help but explode. He has gone from the lowest depths in the history of existence, in verse 8, with very God of very God dead on a tree. He's gone from that to the greatest and highest and most excellent peak in all of the universe, the glory of God manifested through the exaltation of his son. This is just, this is just great. It does not get better. So how do we end? I just mentioned that it seems like Paul's gotten off track. Well, on one level, like I said, this is not part of the story for us to emulate. That's not the point of verses 9, 10, and 11. I don't think Paul includes this either as a, as a sort of a, um, an illustration of the, the promise we're given that you know, reward comes after the, the, the humility. There is reward. There is inheritance for us in Christ, of course. But I don't think that's the message here. Jesus was exalted because he was God. We need to be further humbled until the day we die, right? So this is not that kind of illustration. This is why I think Paul ends this way. First of all, two reasons. If Paul were to end this grand illustration and he were to stop at the death of Christ, he would not be offering the assurance that to have the mind of Christ is anything different than following the example of any number of good dead guys. Following Jesus is not like following other good men from the, or women from the past. If Christ is raised and exalted and returned to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father... Then that's the assurance we need to say that we can have this mind of Christ and it not be in vain. To have the mind of some other great guy from the past doesn't do anything for us unto eternity. But to have the mind of Christ is not to have a mind in vain. To have the mind of Christ is to be of the very same mind as the one who rules the universe. I think that's the first reason he ends that way. The second reason is this: this assures us that we are free to live lives not of selfish ambition or vain glory, because those things are not even worth seeking compared to the incomparable riches found in this one who is super exalted. The praise of men. The ladder climbing, the ambition to greater status or notoriety or comfort. these are small little pleasures. This is what C.S. Lewis talked about: the playing in the mud pies. These are little trinkets when we have something greater ahead of us, that we get to be with the one who has the name above all names we get to be with the one who demonstrated his great love for us by humbling himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we see our king in this glorious humiliation climaxed at the cross, we too are driven to live as citizens in this kingdom Cruciform shaped by the cross. Let's pray.